Hello and welcome to A Novel Process, the podcast about what it's really like to write a book. My name is May Jasper. Okay, gang, this is episode three of the podcast where I'm writing a novel and then every two weeks I talk for 20 minutes about how it's going. I hope you are going well. This episode is going to be a little different to last episode in the sense that last episode I had things written down and this episode I'm trying to accurately represent the swirling miasma of crazy that has been my brain for the last couple of weeks. We're actually picking up pretty directly on the heels of last episode and as I say, maybe it'll be a tradition to say it every time, it would be a good idea to listen to these episodes in order because they're building on each other. If you haven't listened to episode one, you're not going to know the premise of the book. If you haven't listened to last episode, we're literally picking up at the end, so probably a good idea to do that, but just in case. The book I'm writing is a sci-fi novel about aliens who come to a small town in Western Victoria, and in an ideal world, it's going to be sort of a sci-fi sitcom, a like Cheers, but in a small Australian town and with aliens who are also bioluminescent humanoid salamanders. So obviously, the thing I've spent last two weeks thinking about is philosophy. In the last episode, I mentioned that the aliens are biotechnologists, that they their technology comes from biological processes, and that this one of the things about that fact is that it will have a knock-on effect to the culture of the aliens, in the sense that if you are making your technology out of, say, dead animal tissue or dead person tissue, you will have a different cultural attitude towards the dead than we do. We have a, a, a level of reverence. If you are a biotechnologist and you make your technology out of biological materials, you will, by necessity, have a different feeling or, or level of reverence for a dead person, a dead animal, dead whatever, because your so much of your technology is coming from that tissue. And so you can not just see a dead body as an object of reverence, a, a, you know, a thing that needs to be valued because it represents a person who was alive, but also a collection of biological processes that you could turn into something. And that has a knock-on effect for you as a culture. And so I tried this week to think of other facts about my salamanders and work out how that would affect them culturally and, and how we can develop their philosophy out of their circumstances. Now, again, those of you who've listened to the two previous episodes will remember that what I was setting out to create here were the panda bears of their home world. They come from an ocean planet, but they are not fish. They are amphibians, and they grow and they live in a very warm cave. When they're in the cave, they can be alive and thrive and indeed be kind of superpowered, incredibly strong in the cave. Outside of the cave, where it is cold and they don't have the heat they need as cold-blooded creatures to survive they will fall into basically a coma, basically hibernation, and die pretty quickly. And this means that they are, uh, one of their limitations, or one of the facts about them as a species, is that they are resource limited. They are living in a society that is limited by what is available to them in the cave. I tried to think through what that would mean for them culturally. Let's think about food. You can have a limited amount of food. What does that mean? And then I was reading an article about axolotls. Axolotls, uh, you'll probably know, are like are called sometimes called Mexican walking fish, and they are, it turns out, a type of salamander, but a very specific type of salamander where instead of uh, the usual through line for a salamander where you start off with an aquatic creature, 
and then you mature into something that can walk around on land and is amphibious, axolotls remain aquatic their entire lives, even as adults. There are two other interesting things about axolotls. Number one, they're almost completely extinct in the wild, but there are huge numbers of them in labs all over the world. And the reason for that is because axolotls are by far the most successful vertebrate when it comes to being able to regrow lost limbs. If an axolotl loses an arm, a leg, they can you know, lose much more of it and still be able to regrow the whole thing, much more than any other vertebrate. And the evolutionary advantage that that gives them is not just the fact that as an adult, say, they can lose an arm to a predator and regrow it, which is definitely a thing, but also that in the very larval stage, imagine like a frog spawn thing, but with axolotls, and there's lots of little axolotls, they are very vulnerable, as most young creatures are, and if they don't get enough food, they die, and they can eat each other. They can lean over and, and, and chunk out somebody's arm, and confident that young individual won't then die. You don't sacrifice the viability of the swarm to feed each individual member. So if we're planning food in the cave, I could make my salamanders able to regrow limbs and they could be cannibals if I wanted. You'll remember, again, I was trying to write a sitcom, so. But, it, but it's, I mean, it's such a cool idea and it makes a lot of sense for a cave-dwelling species, particularly for a set of biotechnologists, right? That's how, that's if I were becoming the kind of biotechnologist that dealt with, you know, not just plants, but living animal tissue, you'd come from a place where that's a resource that you have and you can use and regrow and kind of farm to an extent. So that's cool. And then I started thinking about the next limited resource, which is, would be, I would imagine, breeding stock. You don't want the salamanders in your cave to only breed with each other because that's how you get inbreeding and you weaken the, the strength of the species. But they can't really go outside of the cave. So are we dooming the species from the start? I was a little worried for a little while that I had created a species that just wouldn't work evolutionarily. But then I was reading about another cold-blooded creature, this time a reptile, an iguana from an island that I think was near the Galapagos, but I might have made that up just because it sounds plausible. Anyway, they're not so much about their breeding, but their feeding patterns. They will bake on the rock, build up a lot of energy from the sun and the heat, and then to find food, they dive into the much colder ocean water near their island. And while that temperature is not something they can survive for long periods, by building up that heat, they have enough energy to be able to hunt for a limited amount of time and then come back out of the water and bask on the rock again. So if we apply this to the idea of salamander breeding, maybe what happens is that you have a generation of breeding age bioluminescent humanoid salamanders and they cook in the cave and get as hot as possible and then they swarm out of the cave and desperately search around trying to find another cave, another colony of salamanders to breed with and, and to make sure that you don't have that interbreeding. And what I liked about that was the way that it also seemed to link up with things like the way that turtles breed. Or even, again, like we talked about frog spawn earlier, but that idea of creating a huge number of eggs, a huge number of babies, 
uh, on the principle that a large proportion of them are just not going to survive. And so the in the same way that you lay a hundred turtle eggs in a nest and then they with the understanding that as they walk even from the nest to the ocean, a huge proportion of them are going to be picked up by seagulls, a huge proportion can be eaten by fish before they get anywhere near being adult and able to lay their own eggs. So we create a similar situation here. We are salamanders, they are bred in in large numbers in the caves, and then only the strong get through and get out and manage to find another cave to breed with. Now, when I think about that culturally, particularly combined with the other things we've talked about so far, it occurred to me that what you're talking about is a potentially a society, an intelligent society with an obsession with this dichotomy between strength and weakness, right? Starting from the topmost level of we're strong in the cave, we're weak outside pure division, not, not any middle line where we're a bit okay. No, strong or weak, that's it. And in the same way, we, in that society, would only make sense to make sure that you have some very strong individuals, to build up your strongest individuals as much as possible. It is no help to send a generation of breeding age salamanders out of the cave all being pretty strong, all being mediocre because they'll just all die. You have to stack all of your benefits onto your strongest individuals. And when you pair that in with the idea that one of the ways to feed the strongest individuals is to chop off the arms of the weak, well, you end up with this fascism. I've accidentally invented fascism. Um, and I really didn't mean to. I was trying to invent alien uh, philosophy, but that's where we've ended up. And also sort of with capitalism, right? In the sense that Except intentionally, like in a capitalist society like ours, we have a number of individuals who have all of the benefits stacked on top of them. There are some very small numbers of people who own most of the money. And that's where our system has sort of taken us by accident. But this is an intentional version of that, an intelligent species that to ensure its own survival needs to create that situation. And then what I thought was interesting about that was that in our current society, at least for me, if I think about our current capitalist society, I don't think it's good that there are very, very rich billionaires. And if I think about the ethical, what is the most ethical thing to do, what is the most virtuous thing to do, I think of a situation where the strong among us should care for the weak, where we should do unto others as you would have them and do unto you. Let's set aside all the problems with Christianity, but it's a good rule. Where compassion and selflessness and charity are the highest orders, the saintliest virtues, whatever. And our society has this other set of values about money and success and whatever, but I at least will acknowledge those are not good things, though, to just the things that the world accidentally rewards. What we've set up in the cave is a situation where the strong being fed by the weak, not the strong supporting the weak, but the weak supporting the strong, is a requirement for survival and sort of becomes its own set of virtue. You could create a situation in the cave where the virtuous salamander thinks of their duty is for the weak to support the strong and the strong to ensure the survival of the species. Again, I feel like I'm reciting Mein Kampf. I really don't like it. But that is a very distinctive philosophy. <laughs> Do I want what was intended to be a playful sitcom to have that 
as one of its points of comparison. I mean, not really, but... The trouble is it brings up some fun things when you compare it with Malunda Bay. Malunda Bay being the small town where the, the, the aliens are going to come and we're going to have an interaction between the alien culture and Malunda Bay culture. What I want is to have a way for their two cultures to interact and influence each other and present interesting uh, intersections. And while we don't really reward the strong for being selfless, we like it when they do, we, we don't think of ourselves as really rewarding it, but when compared to a society where the weak supporting the strong is the ethical virtue, there are aspects of our society that would be weird for them. Like, for example, in the book at the moment, I have the character of Nina, who lives in Melinda Bay and has her father, who is old and sick. And she lives in Melinda Bay and cares for him. And that is what I would think of as being a very compassionate, very selfless, good thing to do. You could have a Zykoftigan who would think that was a bad thing to do. That was not just, you know, a sacrifice of her own happiness, but actively an unethical thing to do. And how would someone who has made an ethical choice react to being told, you don't love your society enough to, uh, to leave the town and, and be supported by your weak father instead of the other way around? Similarly, the book is intended to be set mostly in a pub called The Running Fish. And when you think about it, kind of drinking culture is one of the ways in which our society celebrates the weak. And the weak is not a great term, but I don't mean that we celebrate alcoholism, although sometimes we do, but I mean that in terms of getting together with our friends, in terms of celebrations, in terms of feeling connected with people, we often will do that more when people are a little bit drunk. And for salamanders, that is their weak, again, they, the, again, I say because I'm quoting from another episode, it's not again from this episode, sorry to the people who are starting with episode three, but... Uh, if a salamander gets cold, if they get below a certain level, they start to feel drunk. They start to, and they associate that with weakness. So to a salamander come into a pub would be an odd situation. Even better, you could put a comedian up on stage. And the way that, you know, a huge number of most comedians, most funny, entertaining storytellers get your sympathy, engage with you, connect with you by revealing their weakness. For a, for a salamander to see someone up on stage with spotlights being applauded for being weak, I feel like there is fun to be had there. And then you have the extra element of where capitalism and fascism actually aren't the same thing. It turns out my lefty brain is not willing to accept it, but apparently where money is a way that the, the strong can give up resources to the weak in the sense that in a situation like in the cave where all resources must be given to the strong purely to ensure our survival, what that means, it's weird and it's fascist and I don't like it, but it is a selfless society to a certain extent. It is a society that is focused on the greater good and on something outside of themselves to a, a high extent, even if it's weird and unsettling. And to then have oh, sure, I, I, I have this resource, whatever it is, I will give it to you if you give me money. I could imagine a salamander saying, but that you shouldn't give the resource to that person, they're not the strongest. Yeah, but they have money. Anything that takes away from this 
central ethos. I feel like there's a lot of ways to tease it out, a lot of ways for it to be interesting in that interaction. But again, didn't really intend to write a sitcom about fascism. So that's where my brain is. It's, it's uh, sending me off on tangents that I don't love. It's wandering around like, like a washing machine. The final interaction between Weak and Strong that I thought was potentially the most kind of emotional was this idea that in our society, because there is even this underlying idea that the virtue of the world is the strong helping the weak, means that there is a, a problem, there is a, a cultural cringe around asking for help. Certainly in my family, you know, if, if my dad ever looked like he needed my assistance, say, let's say, let's pretend there's a situation where my dad's trying to lift a heavy chair and I offer to help him, he will give me the dirtiest look because to do so is to imply that he is weak. But you could imagine in a Zykoftikan society where the highest good is that the weak will help the strong, asking for help is not a sign of weakness but a sign of strength, actually. Not just the way your therapist says it, but actually, like, you should help me because I'm strong. And then to have a Zykoftikan come out of their cave feeling weak and lacking in strength purely, again, because of the temperature, to be then assisted by anyone, even in the smallest way of, uh, I'm so sorry, you look lost, how can I help you? That's, that's Melinda Bay saying to that person, you look strong. Not you look weak, not you look like you need my charity, you look strong. No wonder the aliens would fall in love with Melinda Bay, that they are, the, they are to their mind, suddenly they're in a world where they can be assisted even when they're not perfect. Anyway, I don't know, I'll be honest, whether any of that's going to end up in the book, but it's been giving me a head fuck all week, so I thought I would tell you guys about it. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about for the last two weeks. I'll be back in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with the novel process on the Victorian Theatre Company socials or the website, victoriantheatre.org. Have a good one.